You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Back for another episode of Three Makes Baby. And today I'll be talking with another wonderful adult who was donor conceived and she'll be sharing her story. Emma, thanks for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, it was great that you reached out and tell me about the relationship and how you how you found me because I, I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, I have uh, my half siblings. There are, I think, over 70 confirmed now. Uh, we have this big Facebook messenger uh, group and I'm not always the best with keeping up with it, but lately they started an Instagram page and then we kind of became more interested in getting those stories out there. And uh, two of my half sisters have been on the show previously, Allie and Alex, Mm -hmm. and they told me that you were looking for some more guests and that we should reach out if we were interested. And uh, that sounded like a great opportunity. Um, I love podcasts and radio. Yeah. So cool. That's great. I know you have a great microphone, so that's good sound quality. <laughs> and tell us about the name of your new Instagram account that you started for your your group of half-siblings. It is called Donor1002. My half-sister Paula started it. I was lucky enough to get to make the logo. They had made a little mock-up. Oh, cool. and lo- yeah. I love graphic design, so I made it. And I think we've had around like 15 posts so far that might be reaching, but we're hoping that more and more half siblings will add to the account. We all know the username and password and can go on there and share stuff. Yeah. That's, that's great that you're, you're showing the world kind of what that looks like. And I just kind of flipping through it right now and seeing, seeing the resemblance between all of you so far that have been posted. So that's, it's, you know, I mean, definitely there's differences too. And you have a yeah. couple of brothers in there. And I know I'm going to be interviewing one of your brothers, Kyle, soon too. So yes, that'd be great. And so I know you're in this group and now you have the um, Instagram. Tell me about like your personal story. And I guess let's start with, did you always, did you always know that you were donor conceived? Yes. I think I've known like before I could even know what that meant. Yeah. Um, my mom is gay and she's always been a single mother, an incredible uh, superhuman because mm-hmm. I have an older sister who shares the same donor. And then three years later, she conceived my brothers and I. Um, I'm a triplet. So she's, oh, wow. she's an incredible mom. Yeah. And I can remember asking when I was little, you know, once you start figuring out that everyone has a mom and a dad, at least biologically, you start asking. And she kind of just put it in terms of like that she needed help to have a baby and she couldn't do that on her own. So a very nice mm-hmm. man um, donated and helped do that. And mm-hmm. then, of course, down the line, I learned more about biology and what that specifically meant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that a nice man, I know some donor conceived individuals, um, you know, find out later, maybe their donor wasn't so nice. And so there's kind of a, some recommend that when parents are talking about their donor to their child, that maybe they use the word nice when they're younger, uh, little, or maybe not, but then they take out and kind of drop that adjective and just sort of stick with more of the facts. Um, yeah. that they know. Uh, so they don't set unrealistic expectations about this person who, you know, turns out maybe not be super nice. <laughs> but, you know, right. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's something that whether we recognize it or not, when we're little, it does mean a lot to us because we want to believe if we're getting half of our genes from somebody, we want to believe that that's a great person mm-hmm. and a really interesting person So I can remember like wanting a picture of him, wanting to know his name and really wanting to just know more. We were fortunate enough to at least have the papers that described where he went to school and what he got his degree in and 
his favorite movie and little things like that. But of course I wanted to know more. So I kind of formed this imaginary person around the information that I had and believed that he was just an amazing person. Mm -hmm. And then did that turn out to be true? Fortunately it did. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll keep his privacy. Yeah. But we did find out through 23andMe who he was. And I was so fortunate that he really was who I had thought of him to be just an amazingly kind and accomplished person. And, um, Mm -hmm. he was very open about talking to us, but also very specific with his boundaries and very respectful all around. So I Mm -hmm. was in a lucky case. Yeah. Do you know of any cases that are less lucky? I actually don't. Weirdly enough, it's it's weird to think that I'm related to, you know, I have over 70 half-siblings, but I've never met a donor child who wasn't related to me. So mm-hmm. finding out about this podcast was really interesting because I see the post of a donor-conceived child and I know that two of them who uh, one has been on your podcast and one will come out soon um, that they're related to me, but the rest, you know, I, I don't hear a lot about that, which is weird when you consider how commonly it happens. And I have to figure that some of that has to do with uh, whether parents choose to share that information with their child. Some are donor children and don't know it. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with any of the more maybe negative feelings and thoughts about donor conception from those that have been donor conceived and are adults now? I don't know that any of my half siblings have directly expressed any negative feelings about it. Mm -hmm. I think we have different stories in terms of how we learned about it. So I know that some of my half siblings found out later in life and it was more of a shock and a bigger adjustment. Okay. And some of them have uh, fathers that they believe to were their biological fathers or mm-hmm. that they just had a mother and a father. So it really depends on your dynamic. But I mm-hmm. fortunately don't know about the negative things around it. But I know growing up, I, you know, switched back and forth with how I felt about it because it is, it's how you were made. It's how you're here on earth, but it's also, you can have some resentment sometimes about all the rules around it. Mm, Like which rules? I remember being very upset growing up that I couldn't have a voice recording or that I couldn't know more. I remember Mm -hmm. when I was about 12, I think, maybe 13, I found out that some organizations were allowing those voice recordings or a picture or that the rules around that were becoming a little bit more lenient in terms of knowing the donor's identity. Mm -hmm. And I was really jealous of that because that was not something in uh, my mom's contract. And I I reached out to um, Fairfax Cryobank to say, hey, I've learned about this. Um, Do you think that you can request to our biological father and see if he'd be willing to add that. And they said that they weren't allowed to contact him, that he, they could put a letter in his file, but he would have to choose to go and see it. And that made sense to me from a security standpoint, but I was so frustrated because I I was jealous of the new generation of donor kids who had a little bit more access. Yeah. So it seems like in that situation, the donors are more protected um, and their almost their rights are prioritized over yours. Yeah. I think it felt like that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is historically how it's been done because of the nature of it, you know, just over time and the secrecy and anonymity. I think as things begin to change in that secrets lift and the anonymity becomes less common, hopefully, <laughs> that, uh, that that will change as well. I know there's a fear that there would be less donors in general if they weren't anonymous, um, and that's the argument maybe against it. But it's not necessarily an argument that benefits um, 
the, you know, those that are born, if you're wanting to know. And there's so much curiosity. I think a lot of parents do want to know and ask that question, like, will my child want to know who their donor is? Will they ask questions? You know, will they want to meet their donor? What answer would you say? And I know there's, everyone's different, but in your experience, tell me about your thoughts on that. I think almost everyone would want to know more information. I think it's ingrained in us from a very early age. We're asked a lot of questions about our mom and our dad. And Mm -hmm. uh, in third grade, we make a family tree for an assignment. Mm -hmm. And so it keeps being brought up and you're asked Mm -hmm. to write down, do you have blue eyes or green eyes or brown eyes or hazel? And these specific things about you. And of course, you know your answer, but it just piques your interest more and more. Even Mm -hmm. in middle school, sixth grade, you find out about Punnett squares and about traits and you find out about blood types and you want to know all those little specifics about how you were made. And it is frustrating when you look around and see people who know more than you do about those things. And Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone wants to know what they're made up of. And it doesn't mean that they'll try to invade that donor's rights. It just means we want to know, did I get my round cheeks from my mom or my dad? Did I get my singing voice from them? Oh, I really like computers. Did my dad like computers? Like Mm -hmm. those sorts of things that you want to know that some of them are answered on those profiles and some of them remain a mystery because Mm -hmm. those little two, three word descriptions don't always give you what you want to know. Yeah. We are curious about our identity and our interests and likes, things that we have an affinity toward. And I think that is so true that while you're trying to figure out your identity, you having answers to those questions helps you put that whole picture together and, and the idea of yourself. Absolutely. It's so much more complex than just one trait or, you know, from either side, it's way more complex than that. But identity development is very complex. And so it requires Mm -hmm. all these little parts to have it come together and for you to get a real sense of yourself. Um, and I yeah. think that's kind of the journey we're on in life in general, no matter who you are, is kind of trying to figure out who you are, right? <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah not to get absolutely. too deep, but, but that's kind of what we're doing here. And so you're right. I think most people do have those curiosities. And I've said before, my background is um, adoption and donor conception, but I have more personal experience with adoption. And I read a book by researchers about adoption, one of the best ones, and David Brzezinski, and he says that all adoptees search in their mind. So when parents ask me, well, will my child search? The only answer I can come up with is they likely will in their mind at the very least. And if not, you know, maybe in the future, but it really depends on the personality and circumstances of the child. So. Right. And it's not a testament to gratitude in any way. It's just Mm -hmm. curiosity. Mm -hmm. I adore my mom. I have a wonderful wonderful relationship with her. And I still wanted to know so many things. And I think back on, I remember uh, writing Christmas list and I would have like my dad's autograph or a picture of my dad listed, you know, when I believed in Santa, because I believed that he could just bring, you know, he could make anything appear. Mm. And I thought, he would have access to that. And I can't imagine how difficult it was to see that at the top of the list and think that's a free thing. That's not expensive. It's not Mm. a pony or a car. It is just information. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I don't know. So I can't tell her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's so such a visual, you know, of, of imagining that. And I think that kind of makes, maybe has some parents feel a little gut punch um, when they hear that, because of course they want to give their child everything they, you know, they need. And I think that can be difficult to, 
to hear, but I think going into it, knowing that um, it's help, it helps parents to make decisions, you know, that maybe they could get that information or they could have a little bit of something because even if it's anonymous, the more information, and we know anonymous doesn't really exist anymore. So I'm just using that term as unknown basically or closed, even though it's closed, it still helps children to have little pieces of information that they can just have over the years as they're growing up. And so, yeah, so I can see where you were jealous of those that came later that got more about their donor than the ones that had very little information. I mean, you didn't, what did you find out? I mean, you, I know Alice told us what she knew. Did you get that same basic information about him that he was a rower and, or was he, did it say in the file he was a rower? I can't remember. Yes. It did. Okay. um, Yeah. I knew he was very athletic. He was uh, a presidential scholar, got a 4.0 in college and grad school, and uh, his favorite movie is Chariots of Fire. I've, I've memorized all the things over time, and uh, he played the trombone, which I found very interesting because my sister and I played the trombone in elementary school and middle school. Mm-hmm. And I believe Allie did too. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. We joke that our uh, 1002 group would be a fantastic study of nature versus nurture. I know. I know. It's so true. I would just love somebody to study your group. I mean, it's a decent sample size. So, right. I don't know yes. uh, <laughs> what, what technically the sample size we would need. But yeah, the studies that have been done so far have been small. Uh, but, and we do need more uh, information because I think it's so tempting for parents to dismiss genetics and just say, well, it's just a cell and, you know, that's, right. it's so and tempting, but it's not the, tr- the full truth, is it? No, I mean, I love the, um, you know, the phrase that family is really who we choose and, and the people who love us. And I think that's so true to a certain degree, mm-hmm. biologically and, and scientifically where our genes come from, that will always be there. And mm-hmm. so we will always have the family that we've chosen and we'll always have the family that we're related to and how connected we are to those two sides mm-hmm. differs a lot, but it's always yeah. there. Yeah. And I really equate it to our stages of development um, as we, again, develop our identity and our psychological kind of wholeness over time. Genetics perhaps becomes less relevant. So at my age, you know, I'm quite a bit older. I found that genetics and the curiosity about that was much more relevant when I was younger and when I was having, uh, when I was a young mother. And then as I became more established and understood who I was and even found information about my genetics, then I could see the things that my genetics had nothing to do with as well. You know, the things that just made me uniquely me because of, you know, who knows what. I really do like to remind people, parents and enough and children, like adults even, that this is a lifespan. This is an issue that affects people across the lifespan. And there may be times in your life where genetics become very relevant and you're very curious. And there may be other times where you just have no interest at all, depending on what's going on and what's your goal in life and what your your stage in life is. So I think parents have these questions of well, when's it going to happen or what are they going to do? And we just have to think long term you know, you might ha- not have any much curiosity when you're through your teen years, but then you might start to have curiosity when you're in your thirties and you're having you know, maybe your first life crisis of some sort. And then you start to question things. Um, so that's where I think parents think, well, it's, what's the big deal? And, you know, there may be times where it may not be a big deal anymore, but we just have to consider the stages of development and then each unique personality as well. Do you, do you see that even in your group of 70, the uniqueness? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think us forming a group and communicating with each other. And I know there's a Google doc, like an Excel spreadsheet noting what fields do people work in? What allergies do they have? What common hobbies do they have? And 
we try to connect over those things or we'll put pictures together and say, wow, my brother Scott looks a lot like Kyle or yeah. a lot like Eric. And we look for those things. And before we knew what our father looked like, you know, we made a lot of guesses. We thought, okay, mm -hmm. a lot of these men look very similar, have a similar jawline. So that has to come from him and his family. And, and you try to create a puzzle. So I think the mm -hmm. fact that we even have yeah. that group or seeked out uh, donor sibling registry was how I connected to half siblings in the first place. And I think the fact that that group exists is a testament to the fact that people want to know. Uh, my boyfriend has a sister who's adopted from China and that group of women who came from the same orphanage at the same time, they get together and have reunions and they're not even necessarily blood related. I think mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. of them are, mm -hmm. but they just want that connection. Yeah. Whether or not they can know who their parents are, they want to feel connected to someone who has the same experience. So weirdly yeah. enough, being a donor child became a huge part of my identity in and of itself, just to mm -hmm. connect with other donor children. Or it's interesting that you talk about adoption because I would, if I had to explain it to friends at like a younger age, I kind of described it as being half adopted to some yeah. extent, mm -hmm. which was, is a weird concept to get around because no one's half adopted, mm -hmm. but well, people are, if they had, like they were adopted by a step parent, I guess you could kind of say that's half adopted, right. but yeah, I think you make a good point. I think that's a way to describe it socially because we don't have social narratives for people to understand. And I mean, when I say people, I just mean your, your average person on the streets for them to understand donor conception, but most people do understand adoptions. If you just walk down the street and said, Hey, do you know what an adopted you know, child is? Yes, they know. Do you know what an adopted sibling is? Yes, they know because it's been around so long. So I, I definitely understand why you use that phrase. Um, and I think there are a lot of similarities between the two, and that's why I could easily step from adoption into donor conception as a, as a professional and do counseling around it. Of course, understanding the differences too um, was yeah. important. And But at the same time, I know that there are some, I've also heard some parents that say that they don't like the comparison of adoption. And I'm not, I don't really know why. I don't completely understand that. Um, I think that just may be some, again, some confusion around this, the narratives around that. And they don't want to be thought of as an adoptive parent, which I don't, I'm not really sure. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Have you heard that from parents at all? I don't know. I mean, I know my mother's experience with things in terms of feeling like, is this curiosity? Am I maybe not enough? Or I would say half adopted and she'd be like, well, that's close in some ways, but I don't know if I'd say that. And I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, she carried me and gave birth to me and, you know, had, had triplets, you know, almost, almost died to have us. And mm -hmm. maybe it's that feeling like that is discrediting or maybe to a father that isn't biologically related to their child, but has always been the father figure. Maybe that feels like it's discrediting on some level, but it's weird to say that because if we talk about an adopted child and their parents, we have no problem accepting their parents as their parents, mm -hmm. the ones who adopted them. So you can have full responsibility for your child and get all the credit that you should get in having a child, but also say half adopted to put it in layman's terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, again, we kind of look at, well, when you say to someone, so I was adopted. So I've say to the doctor's office and they go, what is your genetic history? What did your, do you have this in the family? I would always look at them and say, I don't know. I was adopted. And they would just end it right there. They knew. So it was almost like that term became a way of saying, I am cut off from part of my genetic background and don't have answers because again, back then, um, closed adoption was common. So right. people were used to the fact that adopted children didn't often know anything about their genetics. They were 
they were in the dark about that. So that would end the discussion. I wouldn't have to further explain it. So I guess I do understand again, that if we look at the social narratives around not having genetic information, the term adopted, adopted does help people to understand that. So um, yeah, I think there's, it's so much more complex. You know, we have this, we have, sometimes we just have these single words for things when really we need about, you know, 3000 words to describe. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I think people get really upset when you use a word that they think of that word as differently. And there tends to be, I see online on social media, a lot of sparring and sort of words thrown back and forth about that, about how words are used and you know, what that is, is when, we, when we're getting into those types of, you know, word wars, I think it's more about the feelings behind them and that we have to just look at what's coming up for us in this community, whether we're in the adoption community or the donor conception community, what's coming up and what do we still need to work on within ourselves? Because we can't point fingers and we can work on what's in ourselves and then we can advocate for change. Yeah. I think communication is the biggest thing about it. And, you know, you talk about life is this long search for identity, but it's equally this long search for connection, which is why finding my half siblings was so meaningful to me mm -hmm. to connect with people. But it's also important to be able to, to connect with people who aren't donor children. And that means having that vernacular and having the words to describe that are really important. I actually really didn't share with any friends that I was a donor child or that my mom was gay until I was about 14, I want to say, is when I became more comfortable with that. And a lot of that had to do with my mom being out to people close to us, but not necessarily wanting her business shared a bunch. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember feeling like, okay, this is my story, but it's also my mom's story. Mm -hmm. And if I can't share my story without sharing my mom's story and respecting her wishes, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how to do that. Yeah. And so I didn't really share about it also because I think I did like a little bit of a trial run in fourth grade where I said that I had a donor dad and that my, my mom uh, wasn't married. And I remember my friend saying, but why? Mm -hmm. She had, you know, a mom and a dad and mm -hmm. she just couldn't understand it. And mm -hmm. in fourth grade, I didn't really have the communication skills to explain it. Mm -hmm. And I hoped that she would just get it and accept it, which mm -hmm. maybe is an unrealistic expectation when you consider that I had had a uh, about 11 years before that to understand it myself, it's really hard to put in a sound bite. Mm -hmm. We do live in this world where we have a fear of rambling on sometimes, which reminds me that I might be rambling on right now. <laughs> but, so we, we try to put our stories and a bunch of complex feelings and thoughts into the shortest possible phrase. And mm -hmm. like you said, we need so much more time. So we do. So much more words. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I decided to do a podcast because, you know, at, at some point the words, just the written word about this topic, just, it wasn't well-rounded enough to really help people understand. So yeah, I agree. And, you know, yeah, you tried to come out, you tried to kind of dabble in being open about it and explain. And in fourth grade, it is hard. And fourth grade is also that time where social comparisons begin and you start to notice differences and that can be a really tough time to stand out and be different. So I can definitely understand why you kind of said, nah, that's enough. We'll, we'll stop there. Yeah. And, you know, if one of my goals is to help parents give parents words and phrases that they can teach their children to use. Um, but also the goal of this podcast is to get awareness out in general about donor conception. So you, your fourth grade self, could speak about it and your peers would understand it and you wouldn't feel like you're isolated or alone or different and no one gets you. We don't want the children to suffer or have consequences that the parents, based on parents' decisions or 
a more parent guided societal narrative, you know? So I know what that feels like to be that kid that doesn't really know how to explain it and doesn't have the words. So the more we educate parents, the more they can educate their children and help them through those challenges. But you probably didn't tell your mom, right? You know, you didn't want to maybe give it away that you were talking about her. Yeah. I tell her eventually. Um, because especially that's like kind of early 2000s, we were in a weird place. You know, gay marriage wasn't legal until 2014, I believe. So it feels like that was so long ago, but we really did live in a world for a long time where it wasn't totally okay to be out and it's still not for everyone. And even in the US. So you have to tread that carefully and and show respect for everyone's story and everyone's privacy. And that is really hard when it's connected to your own story. So I think that's where you get all these people worrying about, if I donate, is it going to be private enough? Or will my kid want to know more? How much should I tell them? Because telling them could mean that's connected to your own story and you know, if, if their father wasn't able to have children, mm-hmm. will that be shared with the world through, you know, we can get context clues mm-hmm. around things. So it's hard because everyone's stories are interconnected and you have to learn how to tell yours in a safe way. Mm. I'm curious because I, these outlets weren't, I didn't know about them at least mm-hmm. when I was little as an advisor hearing these stories how would you advise someone around fourth grade or or that parent in how you're going to talk about that with friends and and connect with them without stepping over boundaries well so i would advise that you start before fourth grade just like your mom did of sharing their story about being donor conceived so they're aware of it and then what also, and I'm not sure if this you experienced this or not, but I would then suggest that parents continue to talk about it throughout over the years. So bring it up and bring it up in teaching moments and some of those like opportunities naturally that present themselves. Like you said, there's so many of them, right? People talk about the, your eye color, your hair color. They It's almost weekly dialogue, something around traits. Uh, right. at the doctor's office, when you have to report your, gen- your uh, genetic background or your health history, you know, that these opportunities that you as a parent take that extra step and literally bring it up and talk about it. I think parents make the mistake of thinking that their children will ask them questions when they're curious, but they don't always. One, they might be afraid to hurt their parents' feelings. And two, they just may not have the language yet and the understanding yet. Their brains are still, still forming and still very underdeveloped. And so we as parents have to be the ones that bring that up, that say, hey, you know, I noticed at the doctor's office, you got quiet after we talked about your genetic history. Do you want to talk about it? Do you have any questions about your donor? And so you teach them to be comfortable talking about it, first of all. And so then when you're going into those peer situations, it may not have gone any better. Your friend still may have said that to you, but then you go home to your mom right away and you say, hey, this is what happened today. I tried to talk to you know, my friend about donor conception and she kept asking why, why, why? And I I wonder why mom, and then let her answer the why. So then the next time your friend asks you why, or you bring it up again, then you have an answer that you can feel comfortable with and feel more empowered to to respond with and say, well, this is why, you know, and again, you weren't empowered at that point to tell your mom's story and it was a different time. And, you know, so you couldn't say that, you know, talk about her sexuality as a kid, you maybe still wouldn't necessarily have to say those parts, but you could say something along like, well, my mom needed help to have a baby and she couldn't do it um, without, you know, without help. Or, you yeah. know, if somebody's having infertility, you could say, well, my mom's parts were broken and she couldn't, she had no eggs that worked on her own. So we had to use someone else's in order for me to be born. So yeah. that sounds really, really helpful. And <laughs> I feel very fortunate that it was an open dialogue within my house. Um, My mom did mention it a lot and she gave me a lot of gratitude for my abilities and for my traits, not forcing that gratitude, not saying you should be grateful for this, but we did talk a lot about my father's traits and 
part of why she chose that specific donor was they both had experience in the health field and in athletic training. My mom um, is now retired, but was a professor teaching about human sexuality and athletic training. And so that was meaningful to her that our father would have similar traits. And she said, I read his profile and he seemed like someone I could be friends with. And I think that did help mold my idea of him around. Mm-hmm. He's someone that my mom would be friends with. And mm-hmm. I love my mom. So I think I, I would really like him. Mm-hmm. And, um, but just recognizing that skills are stuff like we had to work on our skills and have these interests, but they are a part of us and mm-hmm. um, our makeup. Uh, I remember some funny moments of, being like, oh yeah, I wonder if I got like my soccer skills from my dad. And she would be like, hey, I was athletic too. You know, <laughs> I was, I played softball and and was a great athlete and she was. So mm-hmm. it's those things too, where you try to mm-hmm. honor both sides. But um, yeah, I would say despite the curiosity and the natural frustrations, and of course there were tears, I was lucky enough that my mom had as open of a dialogue as she could at the time. And I was very grateful when we connected with a lot of our half siblings that my mom was able to connect with those moms. You know, she didn't have friends who could directly relate to that experience. So we had a couple small reunions where we got together with, you know, maybe five of them. And the moms had a really fun time too. Mm -hmm. So they kind of just let us do our thing and connect. And they talked about their own experiences. And yeah. Um, That's great. Well, what traits do you find? Have you discovered the traits that you share with your father? I would say the athleticism. I was a big athlete before about like high school. And then um, I got more into music and went to a relatively small high school where you kind of have to choose your extracurriculars carefully because they don't all balance together. But um yeah, I would say the trombone was probably something. I would think, oh, well, do we have our dad's like mouth shape? Is that why we why we play the trombone? Or, you know, I had braces, so I wasn't able to play a woodwind instrument. And we could see that our dad had braces. So we were like, okay, maybe that's part of it. And mm-hmm. um, But I would say I got a big interest in science and health. I've always been a perfectionist, but uh, I got a 4.0 in high school and college. It was something really, really important to me that um, I wouldn't say it was always mentally healthy. And I definitely wouldn't say it was 100% like my dad got a 4.0, I need to get a 4.0. But it was something in the back of my head where I felt like that would be really cool if if I could do that too. Okay, yeah. Yeah. so those kinds of, you know, I want I wanted to be as as great as my mom and my dad. And because my mom chose someone who felt very similar to her, I don't always know what I got from each side because it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't it so the power of that information that you received, it's fascinating to me. It, it's really fascinating because, you know, I've heard you, Ali, said this something similar about Roe and crew you know, and she wonders, you know, if maybe she got interested she loved it, but maybe that she was interested in because of what she read about her, you know, biological father's profile. Um, So it is amazing the power of traits and things that we, you know, we know are at least, and they may not even be fact, but that were told to us. I'll give you an example. I was told from a young age that my birth mother loved to sing and you know, as it happened to my mom, like to sing and my aunt did too, but I used to sing for hours in my bedroom. And I remember I would grab the deodorant bottle. It was like dry idea and it was the <laughs> perfect microphone. And I would just sing. And later when I found my birth family, I asked them about that. I was like, I heard that I asked my birth father, cause I met him first. I was like, I heard that my birth mother was a really great singer. And he's like, Hmm. I, I, not that I know of. <laughs> so, oh, really? I don't even know if it was true, but it was something that I wonder now as later in life, if I 
decided to just have this interest or just started singing and like to sing because I thought that I was supposed to like to sing because my birth mother did. So maybe I was mm. that way too. You know, again, I know that makes some parents feel a little uneasy, but I just, you know, I think that's, it's hard to explain, but there's just something about genetics that can be very important to many children. Some, maybe not. Again, I'm just speaking for me and you're speaking for you. That's it. That's all we can do today. Um, right. But, you know, we could ask you about your brother, your, your triplet, you know, your triplet siblings and what do they, how do they feel? Cause you're each different. And, you know, my, my twin brother, I have a twin and he had really very little interest in our birth family. So we felt really? very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do have uh, different interests. I want to touch on just something you said that was really interesting with, yeah. do we have these skills and these interests because we genetically get that? Or is it about wanting to be mm-hmm. our parent? I think that's mm-hmm. really interesting because uh, back on my siblings, we all had that. We all kind of wanted to be like him and wanted to be like our mom. And so sports were really big. Um, but in terms of their response to how much they wanted to know, I would say I got the most outwardly upset about things. I've always been the more outwardly emotional and and dramatic one in the family. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I was the one who had more of the tantrums about it. But my brothers, they were quiet about it, but I do feel like they were impacted in a way that I can't necessarily understand because as much as my mom, I believe, has always been more than enough, they didn't have a father figure. And that means something very different to young boys. Mm -hmm. So I think they were sometimes particularly jealous of their friends who had fathers. Mm-hmm. And not saying that all kids, all young girls connect more to their mother, or all boys connect to their father, or um, even saying that they identify as a girl or a boy. But for them, as cisgendered boys, they really kind of missed that and, and were curious about what that would feel like. But I never saw them show a lot of being upset about it, about wanting to know a lot of information. And we all had very different reactions to finding out about who our father was, his name and his picture. And my sister had a lot of curiosity, but kind of had her boundaries where she was excited to know that information, but she wasn't gung-ho about like, oh, I really want to message him or meet him in person or uh, this or that. All of us were kind of in the boat that we didn't feel like we needed to meet him in person to be complete. If we had the opportunity, Mm -hmm. that would be interesting and nice, but um, none of us felt like that was the key. It was really about information. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, you know, Facebook is out there. And if you're on Facebook and we, we were allowed to friend him. Um, yeah, there's so much information out there from videos to pictures to their posts. We share so much about our thoughts and feelings that there was a lot out there and Mm -hmm. yeah, but we all had different reactions to that. I actually remember very vividly the night that I found out who he was and got a picture in a, um, and his name and all that. Do you remember a specific day or moment where you found mm-hmm. out about your adoptive parents? Yes, I remember most of the big moments for sure. Yeah, they definitely yeah. stand out as, you know, it was exciting. It was mystery was being solved. And yeah, I think yeah. it's a very emotional time. I was going to say it was surprisingly emotional for me. I was overjoyed, but Mm -hmm. I thought I would just be happy. And I, uh, just went into like uncontrollable tears. I was over, Mm -hmm. um, at my boyfriend Logan's house, uh, about almost three years ago. And we had just started dating and I was over there and I got a text from my sister saying, Hey, they found our dad through 23andMe. And she had called me and I started welling up and I said, send a picture. Like, you know, I, I couldn't wait a second longer. I had waited 20 years, but in that moment, I couldn't wait 
10 oh, yeah. seconds. Yeah. And uh, she sent pictures and uh, my boyfriend Logan was so lovely in, in trying to empathize and be there in that moment. And it was a really great thing that we could share that huge moment of my life. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just got incredibly emotional, started looking over pictures. I noticed that um, I think, I still think I have my mom's cheeks, but his cheeks looked a lot like mine. And for whatever mm-hmm. reason, that was like the thing yeah. that really got me and, and mm-hmm. just to have a name and um, yeah, just to have a, an answer, like a, you've used the word connection a lot. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like it connects you to that person that helped, that brought you into this world. And that gives you almost a feeling of, well, for me, it gave me a feeling of groundedness. Like there wasn't a gap there anymore. Like this, there was a connection and that made sense for me. Yeah. I found out in um, December of that year when I was 20, so not quite three years ago, but um, I remember saying it was like December 10th or something. And I said, you know, I finally got my Christmas wish that I Mm -hmm. wanted when I was little, yeah. I'm getting it at 20 and I, yeah. I've, I've stopped putting it on my wish list, but, uh, <laughs> but I was really excited and I have felt a little bit changed and, and different since then because there's not that part of my brain that's wondering a little bit every day mm-hmm. about it. It's some closure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because you're, you know, you have the personality like mine to wonder about these things. Um, it reminded me of a post recently that um, I saw on Donor Conception and Beyond. And she talked about how often donor conceived individuals will report that they look at strangers and wonder, you know, sometimes if they look, if the stranger resembles them physically, they sometimes wonder, wow, is that a half sibling? Or, you know, I know that I used to always wonder. I don't know when I was a kid that we'd go to the grocery store. And for some reason, I was always at the grocery store. I would look around at all the strangers and just wonder, like, wouldn't it be interesting if my birth mom was in the next aisle over, you know, and looking yes. at faces and searching, you know? So again, the kind of that's that searching in your mind. Did you have moments like that growing up where you kind of would look at people and wonder if, you know, you were connected somehow? Absolutely. And I even had, you know, I made all the dad jokes that I could, um, and uh, not not in the pun sense, but in this way of like, you know, I could be on the street and be like, "Dad, like, you know, <laughs> you don't you don't know." Yeah. And and I joked that, you know, that Luke and Leia story, that risk was mm-hmm. uh, a potential threat for me. But um, yeah, yeah, especially as the number has grown. Yeah. I, when I was little, I thought it was a pretty small number of people. So I thought, what are the odds that I'm going to like be near them? The ones that I had found initially were the closest one was Chicago, which is three hours from where I live. And then, um, Ohio and Pennsylvania and a lot on the Northeast. And so to be able to meet them was a very big travel decision. And so I just figured they weren't that close to me. And as the number kept growing, I was like, well, if there are more than 40 then chances are that at least a couple of them live close to Illinois or something. So it Mm -hmm. became, I was more aware of it. And the world is actually so small when you put Mm -hmm. it in those terms. I know my sister, I I might get this wrong, um, but my sister has a coworker in Arizona um, who said that she went to Ohio State University and she was like, oh, Um, I know that the chances are so small, but do you happen to know, uh, Zach or Allie? They, I think they went to OSU and the weirdest thing was either she herself or a friend of hers had been Zach's prom date. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we were like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. Yeah. So there are kind of these, these weird connections that people have and a lot of similarities. I'm glad that you've gotten to meet Allie because she was mm-hmm. someone uh, who I, I think I met her when I was around eight or nine. Oh, nice. And so she's been a part of my life for a really long time. And oh, wow. uh, I've looked up to her a lot. And now we both 
have, uh, we both have dogs that we're obsessed with. And, um, <laughs> so we share that and, you mm-hmm. know, I, I've turned to her for certain sisterly things. Like I knew that, um, our, the half sisters for us had a lot of similar stories about, uh, birth control pills and, and issues with that, with mental health. I turned to her and was like, Hey, do you know about alternatives to this? And I was able to reach out and we both, um, within a month of each other started Accutane. So we were messaging back and forth where I would be like, Hey, you're a month ahead of me. Anything around the corner that I should get ready for? That's so good to know, isn't it? Just stuff like that. It's all those tiny details that if you have genetic relatives, you take for granted. You know, just like you said, birth control, and how does that impact you, your unique biochemistry and physiology and how that's different from other people and having to sort of, you have to end up doing a lot more detective work when you don't have, your relatives aren't related to you. Genetically, you have to do a lot more detective work and that just can, can feel, I did the same thing with my half sister. We realized we both were having kind of similar symptoms and minor health issues. And we had a whole dialogue around that. That was really interesting. And it made me just feel so like, okay, like again, like connected. I like that word. I'm curious if your mom knew that there were that many, when did she find out that there were that many half siblings? Cause it sounds like you found it out at a younger age, um, about, you know, Allie. So yeah, uh, she found out when we found out, um, she learned about donor sibling registry and we had one match, um, to a girl named Liz in Chicago. And so she was three hours from us and we went to meet her and that was really awesome. And then we got connected with, um, another one named Callie who lived in Pennsylvania and then to Allie and Zach. And so they were very early on in, in terms of who we, uh, met and got connected with. And I remember a lot of AOL chats between all of us, um, (laughs) which really dates how long ago that was. But but yeah, my mom found out as donor sibling registry added them. And then with 23andMe, it kind of all blew up and kind of got away from a lot of us where Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say this as any sort of insult, but on donor sibling registry. And when we were young, when you're finding out about the fifth half sibling that you have, that feels huge. And Mm -hmm. after it was above like 15 and, and I would say at least a couple times a year, we would learn about another one. Mm -hmm. It was still special, but it lost that, that shock. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of just started counting and we lost count and we're like, Oh, great. To the point where I'll get friend requests from half siblings and I haven't heard of them before, mm-hmm. but I'll look at the mutual friends and they're all my half siblings from all these other states. And I go, well, that must be a half sibling. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it evolved from this huge, like connecting with one person in Chicago and going, wow, we have a half sibling too someone could friend me on Facebook tomorrow and I would be like, oh, cool. I have another half brother. Um, This Instagram group has really helped with that because um, we, like I made my own post on there and then included my Instagram handle. And Mm -hmm. so people who were maybe connected with my other half siblings, but not with me Mm -hmm. added me. And now I get to see their life and good. Fortunately, you know, social media really does allow you to watch people's lives depending on how much we share. So I feel like those who I met, especially at a young age, I really have gotten to watch them be in high school and be in college and and start their jobs. And Mm -hmm. um, it's been really meaningful. So, um, and my mom found out as things went along, I wouldn't say she was as, um, as engaged with all of like the half siblings, I wouldn't say she's Facebook friends with as many because mm-hmm. it's harder to find the parents, you know, like I'm not yeah. Facebook friends with all of their parents, but I actually, uh, I am Facebook friends with a lot of the parents that we met. And I, I told my mom, um, I just graduated like a couple of weeks ago from college and a lot of them sent me messages or comments. And I, I told wow. her, I was like, I don't know the term 
for them, but I said, I feel like I have a bunch of like half moms out there <laughs> yeah, who I'm not related to, but they really, because I'm a sibling to their child they yeah. see as family and um, I'm lucky to have that huge uh, support system of people. That's so great. That is so great. And, you know, for all the parents that are out there um, that have gone through this before social media, you know, before we had access to such quick information and really just are able to be more open about this. I'm curious about, you know, them too and what they would have to say. I've spoken to a few parents. Fran is one of them. You've heard her probably on the podcast and I've spoken with Vince recently. He's going to be on and if he's going to be upcoming and these are parents that used owner conception as, as long as, well, 30 years ago for Fran, 15 for Vince. So they're older parents. And I'd like to hear from more because I think their experience is so important, you know, too. I think they just yeah. came from that time when it was, wasn't spoken about. And maybe it's a little harder for them to speak about it. But uh, what are your thoughts on on that in general, just the parents wanting to, to yeah, talk about it? Um, oh, I would love to hear parents' sides of things. And, and um, one of the bits of information that my half-sister Paula decided to put, you know, kind of on a list of things that we could talk about in our Instagram post, you know, introducing ourselves was, why did your parents use a donor? And the half-siblings that I met when I was young, most of them had uh, mothers who were gay. And mm-hmm. so since that was my, mm-hmm. yeah, since that was my experience too, I mm-hmm. just figured that was the majority mm-hmm. and um, didn't really think a lot about the other reasons. Mm-hmm. And so seeing these posts from my half siblings that say that their father had contact with uh, Agent Orange or that their yeah. father couldn't have children or all the different reasons, you know, whether their father um, was not fertile or whether uh, their father had an illness that they didn't want possibly Mm -hmm. to be passed on Mm -hmm. Um, and just so many other reasons. So it's introduced me to a lot of the reasons why people come to that decision and it's changed my perspective and opened my eye to all the kids that have a different I don't know, different experience with it Mm -hmm. because I thought a lot about it as, okay, either people have single moms or they have two gay moms Mm -hmm. because that was my experience. And now I'm learning Mm -hmm. that some of these people have fathers in their lives and then find out that they have a biological father. And that's a Mm -hmm. very different, um, I keep using the word experience, but that's a very different journey. And an emotional arc. Yeah. So it is. And I think the originally uh, same sex couples were more open about donor conception because, you know, they had to be, yeah. um, there wasn't the, they weren't able to conceal it. And so, yeah, and especially my history of counseling parents to same sex couples are generally just in general, more open and more prepared for the dialogue around being different and, you know, things like that. So but yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense that that was your experience and that you would see different experiences now as as people begin to talk about it more for so many other reasons that it's out there. One other question I'd really like to know is what is the difference between, um, how would you describe it to somebody who's listening in, maybe a parent or, because I do have a lot of parents that listen to this podcast um, or even just a half sibling that didn't, that grow, grew up like as an only child how would you describe the difference between your relationship with your your siblings that you grew up with and then the half siblings that you did not grow up with? So your social, I guess we should, you know, could say social yeah. siblings. Um, tell me a little bit about that and the difference between that. Cause I think parents would be curious to know um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. There is a huge difference because on the one hand uh, it is about genetics and knowing that, my siblings uh, that I've grown up with, my full siblings, are 
uh, also related to my mom, that we've lived under one roof, that we had very similar childhood experiences. That is huge. And I would say more of that is from growing up together and um, similar experiences than being like, oh, okay, they have my mom's traits or these certain things. Um, we have all these similar experiences that we can talk about. So of course, my full siblings, I'm a lot closer to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you find that you, because you have those full siblings, that you're able to uh, find the similarities and traits in each other as well? That you can identify, kind of bounce. Because I, I know I had a full sibling, twin, a twin brother, and I could measure myself up against him too and go, well, how are we, how are we alike? How are we different? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think you do both. And, um, you know, you talked about sample size. When you have a bunch of half siblings, you have a larger sample size to draw from and, and figure out uh, what traits may have come from whom. But of mm-hmm. course, um, I would say the comparisons with my siblings were very uh, competitive in their form oh. <laughs> rather than with uh with my half siblings it was more observation but of course with um with my siblings we had a lot in common we we've done a lot of um similar hobbies we all played soccer my sister and i both played trombone um we were all in choir uh my brother scott and i did choir and musicals all through middle school and high school and um we're in the same acapella group and things and we had a lot of those comparisons and um, similar interests. And that was really great to have and and also made us competitive, of course. I would say particularly as a triplet, you know, that is, mm-hmm. um, I would argue, a stronger bond with siblings than than most people have necessarily. I'm so happy that you're a twin and can, can yeah. uh, talk I, about that as well yeah. because it's... Um, yeah, I can relate. That's brought up all the time. Yeah, you share every experience with them, that moment in time, the phase of development at the same time they are. Yeah. It's just such a unique and special, you know, connection. But there are a lot of comparisons. You know, it's almost like people want to say, well, I remember people are like, well, he's the smart one. You know, it's kind of like my brother yeah. was the smart one and that therefore only one of us could be smart. Hmm? What? You know, it's like, no, we can absolutely be smart. But they do that with, I think, with, with uh, multiples is you tend to make it an all or nothing category and you're either one or the other, but, um, which was a total polar opposite and really interesting at the same time that you're finding some similarities with half siblings and trying to, trying to connect with other people. Um, there were people around us making a specific effort to make sure we had individuality. Like I remember, Mm -hmm. uh, this had to be harder on my mom to some degree, but when we were assigned teachers in elementary school, they made sure that we were all assigned a different teacher. So we weren't in the same class to like compete with each other and we got to be our own person separate from each other. But um, I actually didn't mind by the time I got to high school age, having a lot of classes with my brothers and we've heard every joke and we had the classes where they assign seats based on, um, like alphabetically. So we were right next to each other and we could compare <laughs> grades and all of that. But um, yeah, I feel a huge connection to them, even if sometimes we we butt heads uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I still feel a huge connection to them. And, and that was really big when we went to college and my brother moved to Iowa and I did not expect to have this whole little emotional breakdown at this idea that I would be separated for the first time. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, to feel like a third of me is, um, or like these other two thirds of me are in different places, but with my brothers, but to also feel like a bunch of little fractions of me are um, all around the, you know, the world with my half siblings. I've they hold different weight, but they all are mm-hmm. these little pieces That's cool. of yeah. that make up me. Yeah. So um, 
I'm really grateful that I had siblings to go through that experience with too, because I think being an only child and processing that on your own, even if while siblings have different experiences with it, like I said, we, we wanted different information out of it. Um, I was never on my own with that, Mm -hmm. especially as a triplet, I was never on my own and I have a hard time, um, really understanding like only children because I've always been connected to so many people. Yeah. So, um, in a way, like, I don't know whether to feel sorry for that because I'm, I'm grateful for the connections, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My husband was an only child pretty much. He, he was so much older than his sister. So, um, and then I had a twin. So it was was so funny because there's so many things he didn't get, you know, when you're not having a sibling and, and he needs a lot of alone time. And I, always had my twin there, even in the, in utero. So <laughs> I always had someone there. So it was yeah. a very different way. And once I realized that how that had shaped us differently, it was helped me to understand our, our relationship with each other. It was like, wow, marrying an only child. Yeah. They, they are, he at least is a much, he's more independent, just not used to having that other person around that you're kind of, kind of interacting with constantly. And, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I could talk to you for hours. I can tell. <laughs> I do have to get on so I can get to have a client session here coming up. But I feel like we could talk about so many other subjects. So maybe you can come back on and um, I would love talk that. again. This was so great. Yeah. And I'm going to be talking to your brother. Is that is Kyle one of your full siblings or no? No. Um, okay. He's my half brother. Okay. He's I'm- a half brother. Just ridiculously impressed with. I have so many oh. half siblings that I'm like, they have to be <laughs> models and so successful. But he is, you're in for a treat. He's wonderful. Oh, I can't wait. Well, I'm excited. It's great to hear a male voice too. So, yeah, it's awesome. Well, this was such a pleasure. And I will, um, yeah, thanks for, let me just say thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to looking at your posts and hopefully talking again in the future. Oh, that's great. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day.